we'll be looking at together this morning. Well, as we are continuing together this morning, we are picking up at chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, and we're going to work through from verse 1 to chapter 15, uh, sorry, to verse 15 of the same chapter. And these are actually, this smaller section is part of a larger section that runs and really encompasses the whole end of the letter from chapters 10 to 13, and in which Paul, uh, after having defended his practices and his perspectives as an apostle, And after beginning to reassert himself in that role, puts his remaining energies into defending his position as an apostle. And we looked at last week some of the reasons uh, how that all came about in this letter. Now, Along with that, and indeed as part of his uh, continuing to reassert his authority, Paul not only defends himself throughout this whole section, but beyond that he also takes particular aim at the false apostles who have forced him into a defensive posture. And the reason Paul does this again is not simply because he wants to avenge himself for the ways that he's been wronged, but rather to protect the Corinthians whom he deeply loves and is quite concerned about. Now, In our first look at chapter 10, uh, we saw how Paul responded to two charges. One, that he was inconsistent in what he was doing in his ministry, and secondly, that his ministry was according to the flesh, and that was their language for saying that Paul's ministry was lacking in divine power and authority. In our second look at chapter 10, we saw Paul respond further to this charge of inconsistency, and then we then move on to address this additional charge that his connection to Christ was deficient, that it was somehow lacking, was not as special or as deep as that of the false teachers. In that same study, we then saw Paul fire back at the false teachers with some of his own observations about them, that they majored on tearing down and not building up, that their methods of evaluating other persons or ministries were unwise, and that they were taking credit for things that they really had nothing to do with. Finally, we saw that one among several motivations that drove Paul to somehow settle this ongoing issue that he was having with the Corinthian church was his desire eventually to move on, to push the gospel into new areas, to see the kingdom of God expand into places where it had not yet taken root. All of which brings us to the passage before us this morning. In these verses, Paul is continuing to prepare the ground, as it were, for this brief season of boasting that he's about to enter into. As we've already seen, the only reason Paul feels compelled to do this, to pull out his resume, so to speak, is because the false teachers, again, have left him little choice but to fight fire with fire. They themselves have boasted of many things. They've been actively engaged in promoting themselves in the eyes of the Corinthians. But the criteria and approach they've taken is worldly, it's wholly insufficient. And Paul hopes to demonstrate all of that by somehow and somewhat reluctantly appealing to his own track record. And we'll start seeing that in our next look at this book. However, before he reluctantly, as I say, launches into that, he wants to finish setting the stage. Firstly, by giving the Corinthians some reasons why they should put up with the foolishness he's about to enter into. 
Secondly, by addressing further and specific charges that have been made. And thirdly, by making it quite clear what he thinks of these teachers. And the reason for that last bit, I believe, is not because Paul just wants to take a shot at his opponents, but because he wants the Corinthians to know just who and what they're dealing with. He wants to make sure that they understand that his responses to these leaders are not to be taken as any kind of tacit admission that their claims to apostleship and superiority have any validity whatsoever. Clearly, Paul believes they do not. At any rate, that's what we're going before we do. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we look to your word again now, please help us to experience the life and truth that are to be found in them by causing them to land on our hearts, to penetrate our minds in such a way that we are gripped and comforted and jarred, assured, troubled, affirmed, rebuked, encouraged, corrected, and any other result you see fit to bring about within us, as only you by your Spirit can do. So please meet us now, teach us, and we humbly ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 to 6. Paul writes, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. As I've already said, the behavior of the false apostles has left Paul with little choice but to pull out his own resume and to spend some time talking about himself, which is his least favorite subject. The fact that it is his least favorite subject is seen not only in the way he talks about it, as we'll see more of in the next study, but also in the way that he sets the stage here and he takes pains to make sure that this uh, little season of boasting he's about to embark upon is heard rightly and not in any way misconstrued by them. And so it is that Paul, in verse 1, asks his readers to hear him out, so to speak, to bear with him as he engages in this distasteful but necessary exercise. And from what he says in these opening verses, it seems he may have anticipated that some would not even bother to pay attention that because of the influence of the false teachers already, they may not be willing to even give Paul the time of day. They might dismiss him without even giving him a fair hearing. In anticipation of that possibility, Paul gives within these verses, I think, three reasons why they ought to listen to him. 
Firstly, he says, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Now, if you have any familiarity at all with the Old Testament, especially with the prophets, then you may recognize that kind of language. In various places throughout the Old Testament, the language that is often used to talk about the relationship between God and his people is marital language. With God being the faithful husband to his people, who so often are not a faithful bride to him. And so Israel's numerous wanderings away from the Lord are typically characterized as being adulterous, as being the actions of an unfaithful wife or harlot. See, for example, the Old Testament book of Hosea. And so when Paul uses the language of jealousy, he is, as God's representative, expressing what God himself feels toward his people, especially when he sees them wandering off in unfaithfulness. And so whereas we typically think of jealousy, I think, only in a negative light, there is something good and right about the jealousy being spoken of here. J.I. Packer talks about it in this way. He says, God's jealousy is not a compound of frustration, envy, and spite, as human jealousy so often is, but appears instead as a praiseworthy zeal to preserve something supremely precious. And so when Paul sees the Corinthian people chasing after these false teachers, he's deeply troubled because he takes seriously the responsibility he's been given to present the Corinthians as a pure virgin to Christ. Now you may wonder what exactly Paul's referring to with that kind of language. To make sense of it, it's helpful to understand something about how the whole um, engagement and wedding thing happened amongst the Jews in that day. A guy named Cruz uh, describes it succinctly like this. It's helpful. He says, the marriage among the Jews of Paul's day involved two separate ceremonies, the betrothal and the nuptial ceremony, which consummated the marriage. Usually a year elapsed between the two. But during that period, the girl was regarded legally as the man's wife, while socially she remained a virgin. The betrothal contract was binding, and could be broken only by death or a formal written divorce. Unfaithfulness or violation of a betrothed girl was regarded as adultery and punishable as such. Paul sees himself as the agent of God through whom his converts were betrothed to Christ, and he feels under obligation to ensure that they are presented as a pure virgin to her one husband at the nuptial ceremony when the marriage will be consummated at the return of Christ. And so again, when Paul sees the Corinthians begin to follow these teachers, he feels like he's watching a betrothed bride being led into an affair, into an adulterous relationship before the marriage has been consummated, before the bride has been finally uh, and fully united to her groom, Christ, either by his return or by going to meet him in death. And so by saying these things, by talking about divine jealousy that he feels... Paul's trying to communicate something about the depth and the sincerity of his love for the Corinthians. And that's one reason they ought to be willing to hear him out. Because he loves them. He loves them enough to be upset with them. The second reason that Paul gives is seen in verses 3 and 4. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. 
for someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Now we'll look at some of the details of that, but the overall sense, right, of what Paul is saying there, uh, is, in essence is this. He's saying, look, you seem to be more than willing to put up with all kinds of nonsense from these false teachers. Certainly, you could give me a few moments of your time in hearing what I'm about to say. Now, as for the details of what Paul says here, he clearly sees what has been happening to the Corinthians as a repeat of the same kind of thing that happened with Eve in the garden a long time ago. Namely, they're being led astray by cunning, clever words. The false teachers are tempting them to see things differently, to think about things differently from the way that Paul had taught them to think. The Jesus that they're being presented with, while no doubt similar in many ways to what Paul was saying, was also very dissimilar in others. Now, what might that have looked like? Well, we, you know, we can't say for sure. We don't actually have any specific records of the false teachers' communications. But it would seem likely from what Paul writes here and in other places that they may well have put an emphasis on things like circumcision and various food laws that added a works component to the message of grace. Or they may have presented a sort of triumphant, all-conquering, all-healing, victorious sort of Jesus without saying much, if anything, about Christ crucified and what the implications of that meant for his followers in terms of their own sin and weakness and persecution and suffering and death. Whatever it specifically was, Paul says it's another Jesus. Another Jesus. A different Jesus. And as Paul makes clear in his letter to the Galatians, Galatians, if you preach another Jesus a version of Jesus that's different from the one that Paul preached, then the Jesus you're preaching is nothing at all. The so-called gospel you're proclaiming in that situation is null and void and powerless, and in the end will not save anyone. With that sort of understanding in mind, then the different spirit referred to here may be the spirit of slavery and fear and bondage that Paul talks about, for example, in Romans 8 which is tied to the pursuit of legalistic self-righteousness and which is contrary to the spirit of adoption and freedom that the liberating gospel brings. Likewise, with Paul's reference to a different gospel, if the Corinthians accept the false teacher's version of Jesus and the spirit of bondage that accompanied it, then by definition they've embraced and accepted a different gospel than the one that Paul taught them. And that's Paul's great fear for them, among other things, and it's what... Uh, that they've done that, and it keeps, it's what keeps driving Paul to pursue them. And so even though he disagrees strongly with what they're being taught, he uses the fact that they have been willing to consider these things and embrace some of them to urge them here to at least give him a hearing now. You've been willing to listen to that crazy stuff. Bear with me now. Hear what I'm about to say. The other reason Paul gives as to why they should be willing to hear him out is because, as he asserts in verses 5 and 6, he is not, in the least, inferior to these super-apostles. Even if I'm unskilled in speaking, he writes, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we've made this plain to you in all things. Now, what seems to be behind this remark is the fact that in Corinth, Paul found himself in a culture that very much prized 
uh, people who displayed great sophistication in terms of their oratorical skills. And they employed various techniques of rhetoric and argumentation, and it was all very impressive. And so in that environment, Paul admits, he concedes that he is no rhetorician. However, admitting that he's not a skilled rhetorician does not mean that Paul was an inferior preacher in terms of his effectiveness. He wasn't inferior, he was just different. He didn't rely on flowery or fancy speech, but plain, focused, Christ-centered speech. Paul, no doubt, could have become a student of rhetoric and likely could have used the same approaches as his opponents. But Paul chose, and I think deliberately so, not to speak in that way. Because as with everything else he did, he always wanted it to be clear to people where the source of power and authority was in his ministry. And it wasn't in his gifts, and it wasn't in his abilities, but in Christ's power, displayed in and through his weakness, not his strength. So when Paul says he's unskilled in speaking, he means unskilled in the kind of speech that they were used to, and for which they seemed to have developed a preference. Nevertheless, while Paul will admit to that sort of unskillfulness, he will not for a moment admit to any lack of knowledge or understanding. The false teacher's packaging might be more impressive, but when you get past the exterior and open it up, what you found was not impressive at all. Conversely, Paul's form may have been plain, but his substance was rich, and it was deep, and it was grounded firmly in God's truth. And in highlighting this kind of difference between Paul's speech and that of his rivals, one writer by the name of Hughes puts it this way. He says, the contrast in its essence is between their rhetoric and Paul's preaching. The former is superficial, artificial, formal, ephemeral, attractive to the ears, but unrelated to the depth of human need. The latter is direct, serious, earnest, directed to heart and mind and will, related to eternal issues, and concerned more with the message than with the method of its utterance. The former is applauded for it conduces to human adulation. The latter is unapplauded for it brings men and women face to face with God. And so Paul appeals to them to put up with the foolish boasting he's about to enter into for at least three reasons, because of his jealous love for them, because they've been willing to put up with the false teacher's nonsense, and because although his speech may not be as fancy, the substance of what he says to them is in no way inferior to his rivals. Now, we could, I think, spend a great deal of time teasing out some of the implications of what we've seen, but unfortunately we don't have a lot of time available. But let me suggest a couple of things for you to consider. Firstly, please notice that for Paul, being faithful to carry out his ministry meant that sometimes he had to be willing to do distasteful things for the sake of very ungrateful people. As we've seen several times already, Paul doesn't like having to talk about himself or, have to, or having to engage with the false teachers as he's being forced to do here. But he's willing to do it for the sake of the Corinthians, who up to this point have given him very little incentive, humanly speaking, for doing so. Their attitude toward him has been quite fickle. Up one day, down the next. Back and forth. But that, that's the nature. That is the nature of caring about other people. That is what it's like to deal 
with sinners as a sinner yourself. It would have been easier, I'm sure, and far more pleasant for Paul to just wash his hands and walk away from these stubborn, stubborn people. But love would not let him do it. The other thing to see here is Paul's marriage imagery, and I think the very useful paradigm that it is for thinking about our own ministries. I'm greatly indebted to Sam Storms for his helpful words here, where he's speaking to church leaders about how they should see their work. And he's thinking about this passage, and he says this. He says, your role is to keep her, that is the church's eyes, fixed on the bridegroom. Young men she has known are in attendance. They're straining to catch her eye, to divert her attention, perhaps even to dissuade her from consummating her engagement. Many will tell her she's made a mistake, that it's not too late to turn back. But your task is to do whatever you must to keep her heart fixed and riveted on the man awaiting her arrival. Warn her of the dangers along the way. Remind her of the commitment she's already made. But above all else, describe for her the glory of Jesus, her groom. Speak highly of him. Impress upon her that he alone can satisfy the longings in her soul. Describe the eternal and sacrificial love he has consistently displayed. Storms writes that, and then he asks, Pastors, is this how you think of your relation to the church in which God has placed you? Now, that's a great question. But it's not just for pastors. It's for everyone in the church. As brothers and sisters in Christ, this is how we need to think about our responsibilities toward one another. As a brother or sister, your job is to help your other brothers and sisters to keep their eyes on the groom, to warn them away from other suitors that might tempt them to wander off, to keep reminding them of their groom, the Lord Jesus, and His greatness and majesty and splendor and goodness and mercy, to keep reminding them that He is worth it, that staying faithful and staying true is not just the right thing, but it is the one thing, it is, indeed it is the only thing that in the end will satisfy them. All the other offers by any other suitor, no matter how attractive, are not worth it and cannot in the end deliver on anything that is promised. That is what we have to keep reminding each other of. That is our responsibility toward one another. A lot more could be said. We've got to move on. Listen to what Paul writes next, 2 Corinthians 11, 7 to 12. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I do, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. Let me give you a ridiculously short summary 
of that. We've already seen Paul uh, address several criticisms. Here we see him address yet another one. And this particular one is tied to this whole matter of his being regarded as an inferior apostle by the false teachers who have not only pointed out his plain speech, but who also, as Paul's words here demonstrate, seem to have been using Paul's preaching of the gospel free of charge. They're using that against him now. Now, what's that all about? Well, I mean, back in the day, not only were people in that culture quite taken with people who had impressive oratorical skills, they were also accustomed to paying to go and hear these sorts of people. Traveling speakers and philosophers uh, were quite common in that day. Typically, they would charge a fee, and the amount of the fee depended on the skill and the popularity of the speaker. The more skilled you were, the higher the fee was that you could charge, and vice versa. Same thing happens today on any university campus. And so the false teachers in this environment were apparently taking advantage of Paul's refusing to charge any sort of fee for his preaching to argue that if he wasn't asking for any kind of remuneration, then he must not be very good as a speaker. Otherwise, he'd be doing what all the other worthwhile speakers around them were doing. To their way of thinking, Paul's decision on this matter, coupled with his willingness to engage in you know, this menial labor that he engaged in from time to time of tent making, to their way of thinking, that was humiliating. Right? It was embarrassing and demeaning, and it should have been beneath Paul to stoop to such things. They even seem to have gone beyond this to suggest that Paul must not really love them. Otherwise, he would not behave in such an embarrassing and humiliating fashion as their apostle. Not if he really loved them. So what's Paul's response? He asks firstly, did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? It's a great question to ask. They'd have to think carefully about how they responded because if they indicted Paul for this action, then what would they have to say about Christ, whose pattern of humbling himself so that his people could be exalted, Paul was just imitating? Beyond that, Paul indicates by his language that in actual fact, it wasn't the case that he was unwilling to accept support for his efforts. It was just that in their specific case, he was unwilling to accept or even ask for their support, and he chose instead to rely on the support of other churches. And the question is, what's going on here? Well, while Paul makes it clear in other places that he believes he and the other apostles certainly have the right to be supported by those to whom they're ministering, there were some things about the Corinthian context that caused him to forego and not claim those rights for himself there. And one writer uh, and considering this offers a number of reasons, we're not going to go through all of them, but two of those reasons I think stand out pretty strongly for me. One thing I think was going on here is this. You know, Paul, I think, uh, did not want to be seen as just another traveling lecture, another wandering philosopher offering yet another competing philosophy for life. He didn't want to be just lumped in that same category. Secondly, as this writer puts it, Paul's policy amongst the Corinthians may have been prompted by their especially pagan view of remuneration. As long as they were going to weigh him by the size of his take, as long as they were utilizing the standards of the world to evaluate message and messenger, as long as that was true, Paul was unwilling to reinforce their pagan approach by receiving anything from their hand. 
And so rather than accepting a dime from the Corinthians, Paul, with tongue firmly planted in his cheek, mind you, robbed other churches who gladly supported him, even when they were not personally benefiting from his ministry. Now the false apostles, they, the apostles would have loved for Paul to accept help, if for no other reason than to simply take away this distinction between them that evidently had been used effectively by Paul to get at least some of the Corinthians to begin to question the false teacher's motives. But as Paul points out in verse 12, he has no intention whatsoever of giving in on this point and thus giving them any further ammunition to twist around what he's doing and use it against him. Finally, after giving them reasons for hearing him out, after responding to yet another criticism, Paul, with an economy of words, makes it very clear at the end what he thinks about these false teachers. And I think the reason for saying what he says here at this point in the text is, as we've seen, because he wants to make it clear that the response that he's made so far, as well as the response that he's about to make, uh, he wants to make it, sh- make it clear that that's not coming from any sense of obligation to them, as if they are some sort of authority over him that he has to answer to, or because he thinks they have some sort of legitimacy. They don't. And so Paul says this about them, starting in verse 13. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. It's pretty clear what Paul thinks there. These people who have come into Corinth behind him He regards them as false apostles, deceitful workmen who disguise who they truly are. And no matter what they might claim for themselves, they are in actual fact servants of Satan, dressed up as angels of light, as servants of righteousness, but they are nothing of the sort. And one day, they will reap as they've sown. And the fact that Paul describes them as deceitful, coupled with his earlier allusion to the serpent's deception of Eve, Eve is, I think, a pretty telling indicator of the sort of things that had likely gone on. You know, just as the serpent took things that God had said and twisted them and raised questions and doubts in Eve's mind, so the false teachers, it seems, had proceeded mixing truth and error in an appealing but ultimately toxic manner. And sadly, the deceitfulness that was taking place in Paul's day, the mixing of truth and error, false apostles operating under the guise of messengers of light and truth, with all the appearance of being true servants of righteousness, all those realities are alive and well in the church in our own day. The name of Jesus continues to be invoked when it is convenient to do so for every conceivable cause, and his support enlisted for all manner of things, including things that are clearly contrary to the teaching of Scripture. And this by teachers who, in clever, winsome, humorous, sophisticated ways, want you to embrace a version of Jesus that in the end is another Jesus, 
one that is the Jesus of their imagination, but not the Jesus of Scripture. Deceitfulness is alive and well in the church. But what is the antidote to deceitfulness? Discernment. Discernment is the antidote of deceitfulness. And where does discernment come from? The bottom line is this. It's the result of disciplined, prayerful, humble attention and submission to the Word of God. That's the only way, ultimately, to be able to discern between what is counterfeit and what is true. In a world full of deceit, the great need of the hour is discernment, and that is nurtured by and grounded in Scripture. But, that by itself, while good, is not going to be enough. We need something more, and that is a willingness to evaluate, to engage, to open our mouths, to apply that discernment. To be sure, we cannot forget anything that was said last week, right? About what is to be the major theme of our ministry? It's building up, not tearing down. Absolutely, we cannot forget that. We cannot forget that things like evaluation and critique are meant to be the minor theme of what we do. Absolutely. Nevertheless, and notice how Paul doesn't hold back when he has to. Nevertheless, with all those qualifications in place, the reality is there comes a time and a place when our discernment has to move us to action, to something concrete, something external, not just something we think about. When such things are necessary, we need to be prepared to do as Paul did here to open our mouths, to say some hard, unambiguous things. Things for which we will likely pay a heavy price. Things that will no doubt get you labeled in this day and age as intolerant. But don't let that worry you. For even in that, you're imitating your Father in heaven, who, when you think about it, was the original intolerant one whose intolerance of sin moved him to act with justice and mercy in and through his Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, just as Paul spoke out in these circumstances in Corinth, he was just imitating you, Father, who spoke out loudly and clearly against sin and evil and defeated them at the cross and have in the wake of that his great offer of the gospel of forgiveness, of reconciliation with you. That was the goal of your intolerance, to bring your people back to you, to repair that broken relationship. Father, help us to have a similar passion and commitment to truth that is motivated by a love and a desire 
to see ultimately the source of all deception defeated, to see people reconciled to you, to imitate Paul in this and willingness to speak up and to follow through with the message of grace. Father, make us agents as you did the Apostle Paul who worked so hard and long for the Corinthian people, struggled so much with them, but was so committed to seeing them faithfully presented to Christ in the end. Make us that kind of people too, Lord. Give us that kind of commitment to one another, to shepherd and guide one another until that day that we are fully united to you in the Lord Jesus when he comes. Help us to love each other enough to do that and to keep doing that. Let me pray these things in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen. Those who are taking out the offering will come forward. We'll collect that at this time.